Hello and welcome to the Unwelcome Podcast. And today I am joined by the Wilfred Riley, Doctor Wilfred Riley. Um, it is an honor to have you today here, sir. Yeah, glad to be on the podcast. Yeah, this is this is. Uh, I have been following uh, Doctor Riley Wilfred. What do you want me to call you here? I'm 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 a I'm still a grad student, so I am automatically. Uh, I'm almost it. everyone calls me. Will in practice outside. Okay. Of <laughs> as, like as I'm just finishing up my doctorate, and so everybody's doctor, you know, Dr. Riley ever, but uh, I'll call you Will. Um, I have been following you for a long time on Twitter, and you have a, uh, a an extensive following there, and have been providing lots of information for all of us who follow you. Uh, that's very data based, very data driven, which I always appreciate because that is hard to find on Twitter. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity uh, for my my audience who may not know who is who is Wilfred Riley. Well, right now I am, and I mean, that, that's a very complex question. You know, part of the answer is known only to the gods and so on. But uh, <laughs> right now I'm an associate professor of politics at Kentucky State University of Political Science, specifically the newer title. And I'm also the author of the books, uh, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, uh, which looks at a lot of these sort of Jussie Smollett style stories of racial and class conflict that really just turned out not to be real. Uh, the $50 million question, a smaller, a more academically framed book before that, which really was an attempt to quantitatively test the idea of white privilege. Um, working on another one right now that, uh, frankly, I mean, I'm a little past the deadline, so it should be done in two weeks. But I mean, that, that will be called something like 12 Lies Your Marxist Teacher Told You, which is intended as a response to the old classic, you know, 12 Lies Your Teacher Told You looking at sort of those jingo American curriculums of the 50s and 60s. Um, now we've gone very far in the other direction. So I, yeah, I explore some things in the book. Native Americans weren't notably peaceful. All those guys McCarthy was chasing around in the 1950s actually were communists. So I include some transcriptions from the Venona cables in there that I don't think have really seen light before. I mean, so that, that's the new one that's coming out. Well, that's awesome. I, I am anxious to 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 read that new book. I've I've read I've read uh, Ten Lies and Hate Crime Hoax, which I I think was perfectly timed with with what was happening. I th I believe Hate Crime Hoax came out in 2019, right? Um, and and right right before the the Jesse Smollett issue, and and uh, you seem to have a, a great pulse on what's going to happen in the culture before it happens uh, that's what i've noticed about your work and have appreciated and for, for my audience who doesn't know uh uh will is very much data driven he's a heterodox thinker um and he approaches everything from the idea that it needs to be backed up by what can be found actually in the data and so with that in mind, I talk a lot about on my podcast, DEI, um, and it's kind of influx into our culture, and in, especially in the universities and in school settings. But I wanted to ask you, what have you seen from a data standpoint about data being used as propaganda? Because I see that a lot um, with DEI trainers who will present data, for example, they'll present a graphic that says 85% of teachers, you know, in this, you know, at this conference was, you know, believe that DEI should be at the forefront of what we do and, and the pursuit of equity and things like that. So what, what have you seen in terms of data as propaganda in that respect and how 
would you suggest that those of us who may not look at studies every day or or are presented with this kind of uh, trick, so to speak, could could parse that out and and figure out whether or not what we're looking at is really what is being what is represented in the culture? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I'm I don't I don't write down you know my answers or anything prior to these interviews. Yeah. If I start rambling and talking about no, that's great. And so on, feel free to just redirect. But essentially, one of my interests, in addition to just standard academic political science, I mean, like I'm going to the American Political Science event later this summer. Um, you know, I teach. I'm a as I said, a poli sci and quant methods prof at a pretty good state university. But in addition to just the standard topics that a scholar researches, which can really cover the board in my field, I'm interested to some extent in the causes of war, the impact of diversity on violence. But what's become my main focus over the past couple of years is using contemporary quantitative methods, um, linear, logistic, more advanced forms of regression, for example, to look at some of these claims that are very popular at the upper end of sort of middle and highbrow public discourse that are in the magazines, that are in the trainings, that everyone hears, and determine as best I can whether or not they are valid. And what I find is very, very often what you describe as the use of selected information as propaganda. I do think that's a good way of putting it. So when I mentioned that book, The $50 Million Question, that's actually a good intro, not just on sort of like buy my book grounds, <laughs> but because the book is a response to another fairly famous book, which was Andrew Hacker's Two Nations uh, in 1992. And there's some there's some good stuff in this book. Hacker's an honorable guy. But in 1992, this Queens U political scientist looked at the state of race relations in the USA. And one of the things he did that became just incredibly famous was ask a group of white people, of white males in Queens, essentially. So I don't know how unbiased the sample was, but how much money they'd have to be paid to be black. And the average answer, if in fact, I know I recall correctly, was $50 million. And that, along with a paper by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, The Value of Whiteness, um, another paper by Peggy McIntosh, was really sort of the foundation of this whole thing. The idea that in this, you know, racist, sexist, heterosexist, cis-sexist, post-colonial, speciesist, you know, I hope I got it all, society. I think white you did. Yeah, for probably got a couple of things. Yeah. Ableist. But I mean, whiteness has a testable value such that white people would demand tens of millions of dollars to consider any changes to their identity, but minorities would presumably want to be white. I mean, this was a very, very famous conclusion. For my college dissertation, which became a book, I decided, I noted that the obvious problem with this was that the guy didn't have a control group. So he was just asking white people. And the genesis of this was really non-academic. I mean, one day I was playing basketball with a group of friends, and a lot of my friends are upper middle class black and Asian guys. And I asked the group of men, you know, if I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about writing on this, how much money would you have to be paid to become white? And the average answer that they demanded was around $80 million. And, and there were Caucasian guys in the group as well. And it was just sort of people in good faith ragging on each other. Like, yeah, would I still be able to dance? You know, would I, would I have to wear polo shirts? Would my fashion have to change? You know, guys are making fun of each other. But you realize from the conversation that there, there are real questions here. Like in the era of mass affirmative action advantages for minorities or in the era of growing linked fate in the black community, where black people test as slightly more racist than whites, which is something we'll get into. 
Um, is it actually true that there's any, any unique privilege here at all? So I surveyed a couple thousand people and I, I essentially asked them, you know, assuming this was, this was possible at all, there was an opt-out given in the question, like, do you think this is just stupid? But assuming this is possible at all, how much money would you have to be paid to, to change your race? And I asked about a number of other characteristics as well, like sex and sexual orientation, uh, even through in religious faith tradition. And what I found was just kind of commonsensical that the whites did demand about the figure that Hacker found, but that most minorities demanded more money. Um, if you view this as a measure of either racism or privilege, and I'm also not sure about that. I'm not sure about a lot of these measures we use in social science, like racial resentment or authoritarianism, right? But I mean, assuming that you view this as a measure of, say, bias, the most racist group in the country would be old Asian men, um, who very, very often explicitly said, like, no, I would not become a Westerner. You guys are our great rival society, and we are, in my mind, a more advanced people. Uh, blacks scored as slightly more racist than whites, which I don't think would surprise anyone who's encountered a lot of members of both groups. Then you had whites. The least racist groups were Hispanics and people who identified as of Arabic or Arabic extraction or Muslim faith. And I, I think that's because, just practically speaking, those are both very racially mixed communities, of course. So you can be Latino and be black in West African mm -hmm. genetic terms. You can be Latino and be white, a pure mm -hmm. Castilian descent. So they viewed us as a little bit primitive, uh, actually. I will note that both of those groups were excessively, in my opinion, attached to religion. So, I mean, yeah. that's, I don't even know if excessively is the word, but those are the Islamic and the Catholic heartlands of the world. So they had a different set of very strong prejudices. So there actually, there was interesting research to do here. I'd like to go back to this uh, in a year when I don't, I have a sabbatical, or I don't have a book deal, but I mean, so the reality turned out not to be this nonsensical univariate privilege idea at all. The reality was the white guys discussing racism, but the black guys discussing affirmative action. Both of those mm -hmm. groups of individuals demanding an amount of money within really $10 million, if again, you view that as relevant at all, of one another. I mean, so it was this complex, interesting picture. Uh, I also did what's called a list experiment at the end, which is just completely anonymous. Like you divide a group of, about a thousand people into two and mm -hmm. one group of respondents is given a series of four questions and you ask you know were it possible how many of these things would you do in in my case and the other group without knowing it is given a series of five questions and is asked how many of these things would you do um again not aware that there's a difference between them and an actual control group which a lot mm -hmm. of quote-unquote woke studies don't have and we found pretty similar results there but again it got even more interesting so like whites and blacks were both pretty open about being mildly racist. Like they're the percentage of whites and of African-Americans that said they would not change their race in condition one, the first study, was very, very similar. Um, what we found was that a large number of members of immigrant minorities, notably Asians, under this second condition did say, well, I would, I would at least consider the, the becoming white option. So what that means is very complex to some extent. Uh, is there a desire to be Caucasian or is there just no real objection to assimilating into the, the full center of the USA? I, I don't know. They still demanded money for the change, of course. But it, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's, it's an interesting short book, but that, that's what white privilege broke down to. I see. And, well, I, I want to I unpack that a little bit, or at least, do right. you think that, do you think that, 
uh, you're writing this at about the 90s then right if you're is your dissertation um i don't know when how old you are exactly but in school um uh do you think that that notion might have changed um with the kind of introduction of of what i have seen as a relatively new concept of systemic racism at least in the overall culture i mean you saw the first of it you know with stokely carmichael i believe in in, in the 60s but as as it's become more pervasive in our culture do you think that you would get the same answers in 2022 um from these groups as you get as you got back when you were writing i i think so i mean so first of all um you know hacker wrote in 1992 but i mean you know i'm, I'm not at 40 years man i mean uh, so like well, my, okay I'm, I'm teasing a little but this this the project here began in the late aughts and was completed okay. in 2015. Oh, okay. Okay. So it, it's it's reasonably, I mean, it, it's still citable today. I mean, I think right. probably reasonably representative. I also think that if anything, what you probably would see is an increase in identity valuation among blacks. Um, I mean, we don't talk about it a great deal while discussing, you know, endless systemic racism. The people are aware affirmative action exists and those programs are intensifying, you know, during the quote unquote racial reckoning. Uh, I think even people who do feel that there's very prevalent systemic racism are also likely to say, well, I'm an American, I'm a warrior, I can overcome that. We see a lot of this when we study linked fate and so on. So I, I think there's virtually no chance that the black uh, figures would drop. What you probably would see is a little more self-hatred among whites. I mean, so again, this is, and uh, as someone who gets along well with my white countrymen, I really dislike this. But this is something that you see pretty often. I mean, like, have you ever seen the, the famous, the quote unquote Goldberg graph, like how race is valued by every group in the country? Yeah, I believe I have. Yes. Even just recently. Yes. Yeah, I drop it on Twitter every time I see it. But uh, Zach Goldberg, who, again, I think is uh, finishing up his Ph.D. at a top university, um, hopefully he'll be able to get into the academic game after looking at some of this stuff. But mm -hmm. um. He looked at, I don't know whether these are his original numbers or not, but he looked at levels of racial identification among every group in America, and they were all identical with one exception. So like the graph is hilarious. It's like compared to an outgroup population, which they give, whatever it is, Puerto Ricans, but compared to an outgroup population in the USA, how highly would you say you value your own ethnic identity group? And the sweet spot here, if I recall the psych research, is that you're supposed to like the other group five, like 70 out of 100, but you're supposed to prefer your group by 10 to 15 points. Um, this is just standard ethnic identification. These sort of studies are done all around the world. And what he found was that Blacks, Blacks are actually a little too quote unquote racist, but Blacks were at like 15.6 points. So like right there at the top of the healthy barrier, uh, conservatives were 11, um, Hispanics were 12, Asians were 13. Everyone was within this one very narrow range, except for white liberals who undervalued their group relative to the comparator by, and yeah, this, I think I'm sure I'm positive we've both seen this, but who undervalued their own group by something crazy like 12 points. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that one of the things that's come out of this entire, you know, we're going to focus American history on these almost minor chunks of it. I mean, the, the enslavement of 10% of the national population in the poorest region of the country. Certainly one of the things that helped define this country, but not necessarily, I think historians would have generally set up there with the war of independence. This, this kind of emphasis, I think, has had an impact on a lot of white kids. 
where people are forced to almost make a decision. Like either I'm going to reject this and that's where the anti-woke movement comes from, or I'm going to accept that I am implicit in this. Like if you ever read, this is kind of a personal question here, but have you, have you ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or anything like that? No, I have not, but I've, I, my father had, so I, I've seen the book and I've, uh, I've, I, I'm aware of it and, and know of it for sure. Yeah, pretty much the same thing for me. Yep. I mean, I've never felt a desire to like institutionally stop drinking beer or something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you ever read the old, their sort of foundational literature, it's very much like you're always a drunk. You will mm-hmm. never not be a gutter drunk. If right. you stop going to meetings for one week, you will be drunk. You will be in. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very just explicit. And the, right. the guys who started this, Dr. Brown and whoever, were serious drunks. I mean, people that were going to work under the influence of alcohol. So if you read Ibram Kendi, it reads like that. Like you are always going to be a racist. Your people created the most racist system in history. Whenever you see a gap between two groups, you may not even know what it is, but you should, what causes it, but you should assume it's racism from your group. So Mm -hmm. I I think you would see less of a sense of pride among young whites following a couple of years of this. But again, that, that hardly confirms the idea of white privilege. And just very briefly, there's another test that I've done at a smaller scale, non-published level. But there, I mean, there are simple, there are simple scales of uh, privilege or ease of experience in life. I mean, um, pretty standard one just designed to look at the different class and sex and so on privileges was designed by a grad student somewhere, if I recall correctly. And it led the BuzzFeed website, actually, for a month or so, just test your privilege. And I remember my friends yeah. and I doing this back in 2015. And if you just get, I've given this scale to several hundred students just out of sheer interest, haven't submitted this to a journal or anything like that. But, and obviously to do that, I'd have to formalize it a little more, go through IRB and all that. But what I find is that about 70% of privilege seems to just be social class. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an even simpler way of looking at this question, right? Like if you take the 110 item survey and you give it to a thousand people, And then you regress the results against race, SES, region, sex. What you're going to find is that almost everything is more predictive of privilege than race itself in 2022. And the big predictor was class, which I just literally measured as, you know, how much money do you make or does your family make if you're under 26? And that, Mm -hmm. that was the huge majority of it that predicted questions like, have you ever gone to bed hungry? You know, have you ever lost a physical fight? Have you ever been forced to turn down an unpaid internship? Like all that was just how much money you had. It yeah. had absolutely nothing to do with the color of your skin, so on down the line. Yeah, well, and, th- and that's that's a lot of why I started following you um, in particular, because we have kind of the same background. Um, you you kind of grew up, you know, a poor kid, uh, I believe, on uh, in Chicago, right? Yeah. And and kind of made your way through academia and got to a point um, where you're not having to deal with that kind of um, class based problem set that 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 uh, you grew up in. And I identify with that because that's I'm the first person to graduate uh, high school in my family, go back two or three wow. generations, and that has you know, and and actually uh, there was a my first uh, experience with a working family was with an African-American family of a friend of mine. You know, he was the homecoming king and he kind of took me <laughs> under his, you know, yeah, kind of sure. took me on me under his wing and said, you know, hey, come spend the night at my house. I was in high school. You know, he's a senior. I'm a sophomore. Um, but that was my yeah. first experience. And that's kind of what I 
when when all this started to really blow up in in 2020 and and uh, especially on campuses and things um I approached this problem of anti-racism as presented by Ibram Kendi as, you know, he, he approaches his idea of anti-racism is, is, is explicitly policy-based, right? And it's rooted in yeah. equity numbers based upon your makeup. Well, I, I approached this from a thought of, well, yes, if you, you control everything by percentages, there's a higher percentage of African-Americans who are below the poverty level. But on a pure strict numbers basis, there are way more white, white, quote unquote, white Americans who sit below that, that number. And my concern at the outset was knowing how I grew up and where my family sits, is that you're going to actually create racism amongst this group of people who often get pejorativized or demonized as a you know, white nationalist group or evangelicals or Trump supporters or whatever you want to call them, right? You're going to actually push as this starts to reach down into the lower class area of things, you're going to actually create more of the racism you're trying to to stop or, you know, he defines racism explicitly in terms of, you know, group representation, but it that was my concern. And so for you to bring up class, it, it, I think really goes to the heart of this because I think it very much more is is a more class based issue. But the segregation, if you want to use that word, of it by color, seems to be a, a process that's going to create the racism that they say that they want to stop. Um, so that that's very enlightening and very uh, insightful. Obviously, I wanted to, I wanted to hit that same kind of dichotomy or, or oxymoronic way of thinking when it comes to the notion of hate crimes since you know you you wrote, you wrote the book uh, about hate crimes and that hoax because i you you constantly hear DEI directors talk about impact over intent mm. right and it seems to me that the notion of hate crimes is explicitly rooted in the idea of intent Right. You have to do. So, I believe all crimes are hate crimes, especially the violent crimes. Right, You're doing that out of a, out of a measure of hate or malice. Um, and we tier, you know, even murder. Right. You have first degree, second degree, third degree murder based upon the intent of the actor. How how is it that we have a whole classification now of crime in society based upon your intent when the un, it seems that the underlying movement behind it wants to kind of remove intent from our, all of our social interactions just to focus on the impact of whatever happens. It seems just, it seems it doesn't jive logically. So what, where do you think that comes from? Well, I think, so I'm, I'm actually going to double back and comment a little bit on some of the stuff you said about class and then get yeah. into that. I, yeah, I think one of, the, one of the answers is just a lot of this stuff isn't very intelligent. It's pretty yeah. low IQ and incoherent. But I mean, so when you talk about the focus on, for example, race, the focus on very specific immutable characteristics, distracting from an analysis of things that are probably more important, like class, like IQ, which I think is in large part a result of training. So I mean, children are going to perform better as Kip Academy demonstrated, the more they are trained to be successful. So just focusing on sort of residual racism gets us away from that. Um, 
One of the things you mentioned, though, is something that's very specifically true. There's a lot of evidence showing that kind of systemic racism training doesn't really make people any more sympathetic to the plight of poor Black people. Because, I mean, you also notice that there are a lot of Black people that are not poor, for example. But it makes people very contemptuous of poor whites. And that almost certainly does have a backlash effect. I mean, if you look at the quote-unquote alt-right, Mm -hmm. That's composed almost entirely of high IQ, working to middle income white men. And mm -hmm. their feeling is, I'm constantly being told that I'm a racist by morons. Um, and that's not, that doesn't justify a racist response or violent criminal response, but it, people are people. We're a predatory animal species. So that, that's very much implicated in kind of the origins of that movement there. And at a broader level, one of the most notable things about what I think of as Kendiangelism is kind of the dumb univariate nature of it all. Like, I don't want to keep mm -hmm. saying dumb and low IQ and so on. I don't, I don't mean that as a proxy for like women or something. Right. But I mean, it's just like the, the first thing that I looked at, this is, was a pretty major article for commentary. Uh, parts of it have gone into my conference papers and so on. But the first thing that I ever looked at in this context was income by race. And this is something that Kendi and Derek Bell in the past, all these guys have focused on. There are, there are gaps in earnings between blacks and whites. And the almost universal explanation on the hard left side of the fence is just racism. Just, and you hear, this, you hear this from the feminists too, right, about sex. Like mm -hmm. women make 59 cents to every dollar men do. That's just straight up sexism. And at some level, it, and I think this has been pointed out more in the sexuality space, like we know that's not true. Like we know if you are a female lawyer in the patents division, you're not making 59 cents for every dollar that a male lawyer in the patents division makes, right? right? I mean, like if that were in fact the case, there would be no reason for every amoral, mildly edgy boss in the world, not just to hire all women. Mm -hmm. It would be virtually impossible to get a job as a man. What you actually see when you look at the 59 cents or the 72 cents to the dollar statistics is that these are completely dishonest. I mean, the first one includes women that aren't working at all. So like my partner, Jane, has chosen to be a home manager because I'm doing pretty well. So she has half of my money, bluntly. I mean, it would be absurd to describe her as poor, but her technical income would be $0. So that, mm -hmm. that's how you get to women make half what men do, half of the women are housewives. The 72 cents figure, whatever it is, 74 cents this year, is a little more honest, but that's just all men versus all women, regardless of job. Right. So if you're a bank executive and your wife is a part-time secretary for the junior league, you make 120,000 and she makes 37,000. And that's how, that's how you get that gap. When you actually look at men and women in the same field with similar negotiating behaviors, the gap is like one cent. And I have no problem saying the effect of sexism is a full cent on the dollar. I mean, that's minor, but it's still problematic. We should work with it, you know, and mm -hmm. that, that's before you get into harassment and so on. But the reality is dramatically different from the false presentation that most people take as the reality. And the same thing is true in racial space. So kind of getting back to the point, uh, when I was looking at incomes by race, uh, the average income for a black man was, or a black household was, I think, $46,000. The average income for a white household was a little under $65,000. But it turns out that almost literally every serious person ever to look at this and crunch the numbers, including me, but a shout out to June O'Neill in the past, uh, Dinesh D'Souza did this once when he was more of a social scientist and kind of less of a political activist. 
Um, quite a few. Uh, Rowan Fryer just did this. If you adjust for very basic things, the gap almost immediately vanishes. The, the one I usually lead with it at, during speeches, during presentations, because it's so non-controversial, is that the most common age, the modal average for a black guy is 27, for a white guy it's 58. So if you're looking at income or wealth, a three decade age gap is going to play a huge role in that. It's just completely dishonest to suggest that's not the case. This is also true, by the way, for the crime stats that the right often focuses on. For example, the black crime rate is 2.4 times the white crime rate, which is shameful, but at the same time, that's before you adjust for age, urban status, income, anything else. So the, this crude univariate stuff is a problem. Uh, another obvious difference that I cite often is region. I mean, 50% of the black and Hispanic population in the USA still lives in the South and Southwest, where wages and test scores are lower. It's like 14% of whites. Then you have to get into the practical controversial stuff. I mean, the average black SAT is a 955. 941 actually a little down the last year I looked at um, the average Asian SAT is 1200. Yeah. So I mean if you're looking at incomes across group there, there's no way those two guys are going to be making the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. I mean graduating with a master's from Stanford pays you more than graduating with a BA or you know, associates from you know South Foot Community College. Right. So it's th these are all simple realities that are just never accounted for and when you account for them Again, Kendi angelism sort of vanishes. The, the hate crimes thing, I mean, so when you're saying most people now seem to be focused on impact and equity, why have an intent-based crime? Yeah. Uh, to some extent, I, I think it's a bit of a legacy of an older kind of woke period. The idea of hate crimes really came out of the, who is it, Gore Vidal said this, but came out mm -hmm. of the search for the great white defendant. Yeah. The bonfire of the vanity. But anyway. The, the idea was that many prosecutors, many people that work in law enforcement do feel a little awkward about the fact that much of what they do is lock up black and poor white kids for the possession of a couple of grams of weed. Mm -hmm. And during past eras of racial conflict, like the uh, kind of OJ Simpson, OJ Simpson through James Byrd era, there was a focus on, well, let's crack down intensely on these cases that indicate racial violence or that involve <laughs> racial violence. That's an especially despicable kind of conflict. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether I disagree with that. I don't see why yeah. a racial fight between young males is more disgusting than a rape or many other crimes. But I think that was the initial motivator. And now there actually are people reconsidering the hate crime laws in light of the idea of you know, implicit bias or disproportionate representation. Like the, the group that's most overrepresented in the contemporary courtroom for hate crimes is actually black people. So, I mean, black people make up about counting interracials, 14% of the population, and I think 23% of hate crime defendants. So this, this often hmm. happens, this sort of awkward situation where you try to target something that's seen as a uniquely white form of racism or as Caucasian criminal behavior. You see this with mass shootings now, but it actually turns out that America is a very high crime country and black Americans actually have a higher crime rate. So the, the behavior is widely dispersed and you end up with a lot of black guys in court for attacking Jews and so on. Mm -hmm. And right now, I mean, this, this seems to be an arena that's really awkward for a lot of people. I mean, we see that with stop Asian hate. Yeah. Where, I mean, there is this 
there was a series of brutal attacks on Asians and urban areas for about two years. Mm -hmm. And this became a national hashtag. It looked like this was going to reach the, a similar level of prominence to what Black Lives Matter did. And the problem became pretty immediately apparent when you started looking at the defendants. I mean, mm -hmm. 70, 80 percent of them were urban black and Hispanic guys. There was no and, the, and these were legit hate crimes. These were Asian women thrown on train tracks for being Asian. But there was no point you could make here about the brutal nature of white society or something like that. Right. So the, the entire movement almost slunk off the front pages. Yeah. Well, and, and that gets into where I kind of wanted to go next is the political implications of all of this, because it seems, you know, you're, you're a professor of political science and there there's a history, I think, of identity politics going back, you know, as, as far back as humankind, obviously, you know, whether you're talking about just rhetoric or um, where do you see this this kind of because obviously I think you're right, the 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 intent of that law or that movement or the kind of backfired a little bit and you saw people back off of it. Do you anticipate that happening um, just in terms of identity politics, especially as we're getting now, uh, you know, we've kind of moved away from the whole race issue for a little bit, it seems in terms of, you know, what you see on Twitter now, it's all about gender and 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 the the band, now banned word grooming or, or you know and yeah. kind of throwing these terms around how is this all how do you think this is going to progress politically well because i, it, I seems, think, it just seems I to be backward yeah i i agree with you i think it's well put i think the left is frankly going to have to cut this albatross off from around its neck now i mean i'm on the center right politically i'm a i'm a mm -hmm. businessman i'm friendly with yourself, James Lindsay. We interact with some of the same people yep. online and off. So, I mean, I, I personally don't care if they want to start losing elections in sequence, you know, whatever. But the, the reality is that I, I can't see this being a feasible strategy that someone like James Carville or Pete Buttigieg is going to allow, you know, big Jim Clyburn down there in South Carolina on the African-American side of the fence is going to allow going forward. I mean, one of the things we're seeing is that this constant focus on in particular Blacks during a time when we've seen crime increase in the USA, like 40 plus percent of it black, is really pissing off ordinary working class people. Yeah. And it's moving them toward the GOP in droves. Yeah, I mean, this right. isn't some contested social science finding. I mean, this is like Pew is dropping figures like Hispanics are polling between 36 and 51 percent Republican. You know, um, well, and you just dropped something on Twitter that said basically that the as the, the crime rate has gone up amongst uh, was that African-American communities during the whole Black Lives Matter kind of push and the racial reckoning. And I thought that was very interesting because oh, yeah. uh, what I've encountered, I deal with a lot of my wife's a teacher and we deal with a lot of um, just normal, you know, people of all races, but African-Americans that come up to me or come up to her and go, what is going on here? You know, why can't I sing, you know, you know. Uh, monkeys jumping on the bed anymore i mean just just i mean outlandish things is that when they're when they're actually facing real problems whether it's inflation or it's crime in the community or it's homelessness or anything like that i see a a, a normal person if, if you want to use that term backlash regardless of race um yeah i i think it's going to be right now it's strongest among minorities other than native-born black americans though and I think that's because of the focus, the focus of the racial reckoning has been really on this country has committed historical sins against blacks and maybe natives and Jews. The natives and Jews don't get a lot of stage time, I noticed. 
But okay, like there are a few population groups that we've done bad things to. And I, I don't think anyone really denies that at some level that's true. Mm-hmm. But I think if you are a Hispanic or Asian immigrant or a black immigrant, some of the most successful people in this country come from Nigeria, Botswana, Jamaica, the mm-hmm. island paradises, Barbados, Bahamas. By the way, notice that today there are a lot of successful black countries. Like people from these places aren't making excuses and going on welfare. But if you're a guy who comes here from Nigeria or from the Oaxacan tip of Mexico, where people are of Mayan descent and a lot darker than many black Americans, and you're experiencing occasional racism, but you also see how easy it is to start a business here and so on. And you hear this consistent complaining and crying and puling about ethnic, con- this lost race wars 200 years ago, bluntly, I don't think you're gonna be very sympathetic to that. And that's especially the case in the context of attacks on things you probably hold dear. I mean, the, the modern left's not very good on small business. It's not very sympathetic toward religion, including my own traditional Catholic faith. I mean, it's not exactly lowering crime in urban areas. So, I mean, I think as you see crime surging, and a lot of it, frankly, committed by African-Americans, and as you see what seems to be a focus on a few specific groups within the population, feminist women, Black Americans, so on, and as a lot of this seems to produce direct negative results for you, if you're a Muslim shopkeeper in a diverse neighborhood, you're probably going to swing a little bit toward the the conservative boys in blue. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. you're seeing with Muslims, the few times I've seen broken out data, it's what you're seeing with West Africans. You're even seeing this with Jewish Americans these days. But Hispanics are the big block. Hispanics are probably going to be a Republican voting coalition in the next election. So that's, I mean, that, that's pretty remarkable. But at, at the same time, it's not very surprising. I will say the, the surge in, it bluntly, black crime, although white, ra- white radicals have certainly held their own. If you go to Portland and Seattle, you yes. see a lot of yeah, criminal well. fatherless white kids, too. Mm-hmm. Same motivators there, I would imagine. But I mean, the surge in African-American crime during the racial reckoning is not really surprising from kind of a brutally amoral standpoint. I mean, a a great deal of the Black Lives Matter stuff focused on defunding the police, reducing rates of police stops, you know, getting this invading army out of our neighborhoods kind of kind of talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a major op ed in I think the New York Times called Yes, We Mean Literally Defund the Police. Yeah. And in response to this, I mean, you saw stop rates decline. This is quite measurable. Myself and Bob Maranto, or Bob and myself and Pat Wolf, Bob is the first author. But I mean, just wrote an academic paper about this where we look at what happened to crime after the BLM movement. And then we get into the literature on BLM and so on. But I mean, bluntly, if you stop enforcing the law for any one group, that Mm -hmm. group's going to be more likely to break the law. Mm -hmm. I mean, and again, we see this to near to 0.9, the same extent with the white kids in San Francisco and Seattle and Portland. If you allow people to live in a savage kind of Lord of the Flies environment, they're going to take advantage of that. It's fun to have sex in the streets and throw bricks at the cops if you're under 25. It's just we as a society haven't generally allowed that for obvious reasons. But I mean, some of those like they must not be named researchers mm-hmm. like Steve Saylor, for example, have actually looked at pullout data that goes beyond the homicide rate. And they found that every imaginable form of what you could call misbehavior has surged in black communities since the cops stood down. And again, I want to emphasize, I mean, Steve's considerably to the right of me. So I'll note the same exact thing would happen in poor white or Hispanic communities if all the cops just left. That's a remarkable thing that we allowed to happen to our countrymen. But I mean, you can't can't overstate that, what's, what's happened. But I mean, like drunk driving is on the rise. 
drug overdoses have increased so much among black people that we've almost caught whites. I don't, I don't mean to mock whites. No, but, but yeah. Then, we've led in murder and you guys have been over right. suicides. Right. <laughs> but, but when you see this, when like you, when you stop enforcing the law for one group so much that they catch their friendly rivals in the categories where they're mm -hmm. generally not pathological, you're seeing a problem. I mean, like auto fatalities have increased in the black community because basic things like people, and again, urban kids of all colors do this, but like people right. stunting in their cars, like getting outside the car and holding the wheel and walking, dumb, almost suicidal stuff. That's mm -hmm. now not enforced. Yeah. I mean, when I go back to Chicago or even when I party in Louisville, you'll see people in working class neighborhoods, looks like they're Feldman rap videos in the streets. Yeah. And I don't mean that glibly. I mean, like literally there is such a low chance of police involvement that you can film your friends partying in a public area in a way that's very likely to produce fatalities. Mm -hmm. Whereas in potentially high crime white and Latino areas like Appalachia or West Texas, that hasn't happened because the shackles of law are still on. Yeah. If you tried doing that in downtown Frankfurt, where I live, you'd immediately be arrested by a squad of diverse 250 pound cops. So it's that's why you see the increase in crime here, but mm -hmm. not here. And a, a final kind of quant statement before we move to the next topic, you ask the next question. I'm a culturalist when it comes to things like IQ. And what yeah. that means is I, I acknowledge there might be a minor role for racism, things like that. I acknowledge that at the individual level, certainly there's a role for genetics. But at the most basic level, how well you perform at most things, middle distance running would be less controversial than taking exams, is very, very, very heavily a product of how much you train to do that thing. Mm -hmm. um, I used to be able to run a substantially sub six minute mile because I was a track runner. Yeah. It was my, my spring season sport. Now, if you put me out on a full size track, <laughs> like a 400 or 800 meter lap, and we're just like, run around that six times, little buddy. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no chance of that happening because the, the training's not there. These cultural right. variables, father in the home, they're absolutely key. And I feel very often that both sides of our debate, kind of the genetics boys over here, and then mm -hmm. the Ibram Kendi's over here, ignore this clear cut fact that you can train people to do shit. It's yeah. one of the weirdest omissions <laughs> in social science. Yep. But like, so here's the culturalist stat. Black people have in general, and here you can toss in anything from race to genes, but yep. have had a higher murder rate than whites have, just as whites have had a higher suicide rate. But mm -hmm. if you go back into your Walter Williams or something in 1940s, it was maybe 25% of murders would involve African-Americans, blacks were 14% of the population. Last year, black people made up 62% of the murders. So 62% of all the people that were shot in a country that also has large Hispanic, Italian American, Native American, Irish American, Appalachian populations were black. That is a very, very recent function of the fact that we've basically just stopped enforcing the law in the hood. Yeah. I mean, so it's it, what would bring peace to the hood? We, we can talk about, you know, population changes over a thousand years but what always did bring peace to the hood was just enforcing the law so a movement that spoke out against enforcing the law is is having a dramatic negative effect there right so again, well, well and i i think that's right on but it, it i i want to just make the point that i grew up in you know rural missouri okay mm -hmm. and so um and you have uh, i would say it's a predominantly white area although the the place i was from was very very diverse yeah. but but you had the same kind of breakdown but it was always based on class and was always based on where 
the 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 police population was in terms of where the crime was regardless of the race and this is just obviously this is lived experience if you want to say that but i within the white community if you want to you see the same kind of breakdown whether it's you know you have a small town right outside your your major population that is um largely not it's either run by a corrupt sheriff or it's you know you have people that or just not a big police presence, you would see the white community flock that direction if that's where they wanted to avoid the law. And then you would see the crime rates rise there. And it had nothing to do with uh, the race of the people. You know, I mean, I think going back in the day, like when my father was a kid or my grandfather was a kid, you actually saw some breakdown when it came to um, religion even, you know, Protestant versus Catholic versus, you know, whatever breakdown you wanted to see, but it was still the same. And it had very little to do with race. It had very little to do with um, anybody's group setting other than, hey, I'm poor. And I got nothing better to do. I have nothing to 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 occupy my time. I have nothing to challenge me. I wasn't raised in a culture that you know uh, um, valued education and those kind of pursuits. And uh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to just be reckless, and and that's kind of my form of entertainment until it becomes kind of a life process. Um, and that gets that gets me into the next places I, I wanted to go. I am a just so you know, I am a music student. I'm a, a doctor. Yeah a doctoral candidate in choral conductance. I'm a choir director. And, <laughs> and I kind of encountered this um, whole movement in, in the classroom right after George Floyd with the kind of, uh, I was presented in a class called the, the, it's called the Pedagogy of Music Theory in the 21st Century. And the first thing I was hit with was a, uh, a lecture by a man named, or uh, an academic out of New York, uh, music theorist, his name is Philip Ewell, and he, it was basically, you know, white uh, music theories, white racial frame, and his whole aspect of this, and I know, and I wanted to talk to you about this, because you, you're you a, a fan of hip-hop music, and, and kind of come from that realm, um, which interestingly enough is kind of the push as as rejecting you know, in a classical music sense, the the white racial frame. But his whole thesis was that the reason why African-Americans or people of color, if you want to go, you know, indigenous or don't, aren't represented in music and music theory and classical music academia is because of racism. You know, and, and this, is a, this is a cultural issue, right? This isn't so much... Uh, when you're talking about music, because music music belongs to us all. I'm a fan of hip hop music. I'm a fan of classical music. I do, I wasn't raised that way starting out uh, when in terms of classical music, but uh, I kind of grew a taste for it in my high school years because I found that I could I was exposed to it, and it had nothing to do. I was I was a country music kid, or I was a really a church kind of you know rock band music kid before that. And so I wanted to know your thoughts in terms of the culture and when it comes to music because there's not a lot of data here, right? When it, in this specific area, what do you think? Do you think that Philip Yule has a has a point that because you know classical music's so white? That's why black people don't want to be involved in it. Or is it because they weren't maybe exposed to it at a young age, like he was, for an example, because and I want to say this a little bit. He went to his father was a, a you know, a professor at a HBCU. He actually went to Morehouse with Martin Luther King. 
And he, he indicts Martin Luther King in his talk by way of his father and says they're both wrong, you know, in their love for classical music. I was wrong because this is obviously a racially motivated pursuit. And he completely ignores all the cultural issues. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Uh, do you think that there's a point to what he's saying? Or do you think no. that it has way more to do with culture? No, I, I think there's no point at all. I, I think a lot of this language, and now we're, but actually, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get sort of gaslit and say, well, I don't know if I'm right. I, I think what I'm about to say is just obviously true. I think a lot of this language used, again, gets back to what we were saying earlier about sort of meaningless kind of low G nonsense, although this guy might himself be a smart, funny guy. I don't know. But the claim of like a white racial frame in the context of music doesn't make sense to me at all. You might clarify some of this as a professional student of the field. Yeah. But I mean, my understanding is that there are different types of musical and orchestral compositions that have existed across human societies for right most, well you know, and his, I mean, let me let me clarify a little bit he, music theory is so he's a music theorist and he was presenting to a music theory conference and music theory actually is the most i, I would say science-based musical pursuit right it's literally yeah. all music theory when you're talking about composition which is kind of where he goes into all it is is a way to map a a, a scientific provable phenomena based on waves that you know go across the air and then western society early on you know uh, 1500s developed a method to write that down and translate it without a recording and that's what music theory is and then it was it, it was kind of uh it's been developed over the course of time you know and expanded out when it came to you know adding instruments but it was always duke ellington used the same you know, notes and rhythms oh. and bar lines okay. that, so this, that Beethoven used, you know? This, so. this gets into, I, I don't think that knowledge can be raced or that it belongs to any right. one culture or any point in history. Right. Um, I mean, I'm a firearms instructor as a sideline pursuit, oh, and it would be absurd to say that fighting with guns comes from a Chinese racial frame. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that when you look at the great peoples of Earth, I mean, you know, what did Africa ever produce? All the humans. You yeah. know, what did Asia, I mean, 70% of the inventions, I mean, until the very modern era, all of the great human societies learned pretty extensively from one another. I mean, this, mm -hmm. this is not a subject for debate. And the numbers we use when we do mathematical calculation are Arabic numerals. The alternative name would actually be Moorish numerals if you want to mm -hmm. get a little hotep there. I mean, but you're not, you're not coming from a black racial frame or a dark right. skin caucasian racial frame when you're doing mathematics knowledge simply once it's discovered by an individual inventor because all whites didn't work together to figure out musical notation becomes the intellectual property of the human race mm -hmm. the only the only situation in which i could see an idea like racial frame ever having value would be a situation where the genetic hereditarians on one side or the other were correct and there were pretty substantial group differences so that Blacks, for example, had an advantage when it came to reading musical notation, but Whites had an advantage when it came to reading, you know, prose, code, and plans, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that there are 10 plus percent genetically based human group differences because I'm not a racist. So I, I think it's absolutely meaningless to say that music, reading, the art of reading music was developed by Northern European Whites, and so that is a white framing. Right. Um, 
again, the mathematics, I would say, reached their highest peak, in fact, until very recently among non-white cultures. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the entire, interestingly, the, the same guy inspired the word algebra and the word gibberish. Uh, the Arab genius Al-Jabir, but I mean, he was known for these incomprehensible mathematical proofs while he was traveling and he wrote this all down. The, the symbols weren't as uh, standardized as they are today. So people would look through his papers and they would see the, this complete nonsense and the term that became utile for it was just gibberish. But he was yeah. also the discoverer of a fair number of modern mathematical principles and techniques you still use today. But anyway, I don't think you are paying tribute to the ancient Arabic mathematicians if you open up a calculus book. It's meaningless. Right. The, the real issue kind of getting to the point with all this stuff is, and this is actually a key point across fields. This again gets into the dumb univariate nature of so much of this stuff. The idea that any field that doesn't display proper proportional representation is wildly actually racist or sexist is something you're starting to see more and more these days. Like I actually, some of these covers are so ridiculous that I took pictures of seven or eight of them and put them up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. But the last time I was in the airport going to a business conference, uh, almost every magazine's front piece was like this. So like outside magazine was asking the question, why is the wilderness so white? And then you'd go down to like architectural digest. And it's like, how can we get more diversity into the field of traditional Malaysian architectural analysis? Everyone's an upper class Southeast Asian. And it's just and on and on and on with this. And to me, I, yeah, to answer your question, obviously there are key cultural variables. Like I would assume that most people that are interested in Malaysian architectural history would be smart guys from Southeast Asia. Yeah. So sure, if, if you a white or a black stumbles into that field, you know, give them a scholarship, you want to diversify it a little. But I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I would probably prefer that if I were taking a course in, what would it be, Bahasa Malay, the language mm -hmm. that the teacher be of Malay cultural or genetic origins. If yeah. I walked in there and I saw an Irish guy who'd spent a couple of years in the Free Burma Rangers or something, I might have some questions about their capability to actually teach me the topic. So segmentation by group. You know, this Tom Soule's famous 60% of Italian chefs are Italian. I don't mm -hmm. think it's itself problematic at all. In fact, if I can, let me pull up a document here. Fields in which. This might take a second. That's fine. Okay. Well, I, I, think, I think you're hitting the, obviously, you're hitting this nail right on the head. And I think part of what I've seen that is very dangerous here is that I feel like the culture is being weaponized against itself, right? That the, uh, when you're talking about, a lot of and a lot of these uh, you see a lot of liberal white men in my field trying to protect themselves and so they grab a hold of this ideology and start to use it to chip away at what it is that they've actually studied their entire life and and what actually makes them money and then you see a breakdown of uh, what i think is very racist about it is that they start expecting less yeah. from students of color or just students across the board Right. And then you have uh, there there was just recently a, a book put out by a music educator out of Michigan State and, it, you know, the music education for social justice. And she advocates in that book explicitly that we need to lower standards for anyone who comes from a historically oppressed group. Right. And that might uh, uh, in order for them to get into school so that they can be a part of this process and 
that to me just you know you're hitting the, the robin d'angelo oh my gosh why are you so racist like i, I mean that <laughs> you know that, that's what i'm hit with and and it, it it's weaponizing this ideology against themselves in a way that i think is just pathological it doesn't make any sense well, I, I think pathological is a good term for it. I mean, when I mentioned earlier, and sorry, I'm outside. It's a little no, that's okay. My take off this top shirt, actually. Yeah. But when I when I mentioned earlier that every single human group scores at pretty much the same level, at least it's. I'm going to put my shirt back on. But scores at pretty much the same level, at least in civilized countries like the states, when it comes to in group out group feeling, and then there are white liberals. That's mm -hmm. actually not a healthy finding. I mean, there is a substantial amount of self-hate, in-group distrust, so on, among that particular population. And the question is whether it's even in-group dislike or whether it's you like yourself, but you view most of the people that look like you as villains or as wicked or something like that. But so I, I guess I have three comments here. First, in terms of culture, I got this document pulled up. So this is from the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. It's just called Fields Where African-Americans Earn Fewer No Doctoral Degrees. And they're talking about the problem with claims that your institution is racist if you don't have a proportional breakdown of, say, Blacks and Hispanics. And I'll just read some of this. Because of our focus in education and business, where we do quite well, Blacks are vastly underrepresented among doctoral degree recipients in many disciplines. For example, African Americans earned only 1.8% of all doctorates awarded in physics to US citizens and permanent residents. I noticed there's a little uh, cop out there to carve out those Nigerians at the end. <laughs> but Blacks earned 3.8% of all mathematics and statistics doctorates, that's with Africans in, 3.7% of all doctorates in computer science, and only 4.1% of all doctorates awarded in engineering disciplines. In 2016, this is more striking, according to the National Science Foundation, 1,660 doctorates were awarded in the fields of agricultural economics, fishing, fishery science, wildlife biology, geophysics, seismology, paleontology, ocean and marine sciences, astronomy, atomic physics, nuclear physics, plasma physics, general physics, logic and topology, neuropsychology, physical and biological anthropology, applied linguistics, French, Italian, German, Latin American languages and literature, European history and classics, not one was earned by an African-American. So, I mean, I think we definitely need to work on that pipeline there. But when you talk about the hard basic reality of colleges, large institutions like my own University of Illinois, saying that we're going to have a fully diverse 11% um, African-American anthropology department, for example, by 2030, I mean, you're, you're talking fantasy and woo. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely unachievable thing. So, I mean, when you talk about a large number of young academics, young business people, most of whom are white because most people are, they're latching onto this stuff. It's the ideology of the day. They want to feel protected. Um, I think that because I, I suspect there are clandestinely uh, quite a few members of this cohort in your audience, the first piece of advice I would give is don't do that. Because yeah. obviously there's going to be a Jew in Hitler's army element to it. And I, yeah. I don't mean to directly com compare those two right. situations. Like if you are a white male who is applying for a job at Barnard 
and you're as woke as possible and you state in your equity statement and all the other things you now have to do that your primary goal is diversifying the campus and so on, there's always going to be one question hanging around your neck, which is why don't you give your job to a black guy? Right. And I mean, really, anyone would be ahead of you on that hierarchy, right? Like an Asian mm-hmm. woman. And that's a group that earns plenty of doctorates would be ahead of you on the oppression hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So once you accept, we're not going to judge people based on qualification, based on talent, based on IQ score. We're going to judge people based on immutable group characteristics. You can't. This is one of the things I think FAIR and 1776 unites and these kind of centrist to center right groups I, I work with are actually very good on. Yeah. That, that is the one line that has to be held. We can debate gender and so on. But once you say we are going to reduce people to these immutable categories, you're, you're never going to be at an advantage in any subsequent negotiation if you're a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are two ways to respond. I'll actually give some Sun Tzu style advice to the, the young profs out there. One, which I would recommend as a man of honor, I think, at least in attempt, but is to simply say, well, I don't think that way. I'm an individual. You know, I would have been considered a Sicilian surf 50 years ago. I'm not going to play this game. I'm not going to fill this. The second, and I think this is becoming more common, is just to make up a fake oppressed identity of your own. Yeah. And when I look at white, high- Neurodivergent. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. I mean, like, I remember talking to a buddy of mine. We're both- late 30s black business people were talking about tinder i'm in a relationship now so i don't screw all that stuff but i mean like he said you notice there aren't any white women on this app and i said what do you mean it's like 70 percent white women and he said no like almost all of them identify as something in the same way people do on twitter like everyone is neurodivergent was specifically mentioned but like if they're jewish or arab they're mina like the new made up mm-hmm. racial category um they're, they're identifying with fatness as an ethnicity like i'm a bbw Mm -hmm. um they're bi (laughs) and they all say that like right up before you even try to hook up with them or they're demisexual or they're trans or if they're not if they're nothing they insist on identifying as cis so Mm -hmm. i I think that you're gonna see a lot of that where the percentage of people that identify as white male but also like neurotypical um cisgender and heterosexual is gonna be like 10 right. in higher education in the fairly near future, at least on the left side of the fence. Well, and I think you're, see, I think you're seeing it in, in, this is my concern with, with when you're talking about K through 12 education, right? Because you have kids at their most impressionable being met with teachers who are saying this is a virtue and that, and that happens as, you know, kids, I mean, you've seen this with just bulimia in general. Like if you have a, a young girl who's, who's bulimic, right? And she has a group of friends that will spread. Oh yeah, right. And, and 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 that's my concern with this whole ideology. Whether you're talking about the race issue, but more into the gender issue now, that kids are seeing this as the virtue, and in order to be good, they have to become this. And that has great implications, or very dangerous implications, as you move forward. And uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I'd like to know your thoughts as as you know somebody who has obviously gone through all of education. You are now a college professor. Okay. But you are seeing undergraduates who may or may not become teachers. Have you, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're at a historically black college, right? Yeah, K-State. Yeah, yeah K-State. K-State. Yeah, okay. And I, I'm kind of interested in how this may differ on a historically black college and this kind of whole DEI movement in general, because you can put gender and, and race whole, all falls kind of under that same umbrella. But how are you seeing this? How have you seen the campus change 
when it comes to these kids who are going to go out and be the teachers and influence us, because I see a dramatic rise just in even the last three or four years where it's like everything is gender bending. And, and I deal mostly with music education or education uh, students, and it's been absolutely drastic. And it's also been corresponding with the rise in mental, you know, uh, mental problems, just in terms of emotional issues that these kids are having at the same time. How do you see that? How, how have you seen it change in your time in academia, you know, from the time you were doing your doctorate until now where, you, where you've been teaching? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot there. I mean, so first of all, at K-State, the gender side of this hasn't been all that much of an issue. Uh, one of the things that I've said in a bunch of interviews that people are always surprised by until they think about it is that HBCUs and other successful Black and Hispanic institutions aren't generally all that woke. Like, we obviously oppose traditional racism, but the people that really drive the woke movement aren't black business people. They're sort of purple haired, white kids, generally upper middle class. But I mean, more seriously, that feel a need to abase themselves, mm -hmm. that feel they've done something wrong or their ancestors have done something terrible in the past. I mean, if you're I mean, I mentioned a departmental or a budget meeting today. Like if you're sitting in a room and everyone in the room is a well-adjusted black man with a tie on it's going to be very, very hard to say, you know, who's at fault for these issues we're dealing with, you know, whitey. It, it just doesn't make sense. There, there, yeah. there might be one Caucasian in the room and he's a, he's a junior faculty member who everyone likes. Right. So we, we actually don't have a radically woke environment. I mean, there are some people who would probably ID as trans, but I, I don't really, I don't know any non-binary, you know, black Kentucky student athletes or something like that right mm -hmm. now. I, so I'm not exactly at the peak of that trend. But I mean, looking at the gender movement all in, I mean, I would agree with, so I took, I mean, I, I think that the basic point you're making isn't really debatable. I mean, when you talk about there being more sexual orientational flex or more gender flex among young people, I mean, the latest data came out for under 25s recently, and mm -hmm. they found that 15.6 percent of people identify as in some way queer their term and you know that the 15 percent of the population is not gay at the marry a man level that means hook up right. at a party bisexual or that means i'm trans or dimmy or nb or some other college student e. label so that's that's simply bill maher once jokingly described yes. as coming out as look at me i mean in one of many funny videos <laughs> on this but like a demisexual just for the audience that hasn't yet encountered one is a woman that won't have sex with you unless she actually likes you and finds you attractive. Yeah. It's, one of the, it's one of the funniest things in the world. Like if you actually read about demisexuality, one of the indicators is that people who are demisexual will wait at least three dates to sleep with you. And I, I, but I was it's old-fashioned values, right? I was talking about this with like friends of mine. And they were like, bro, it's just Catholic. I yeah. mean, it's like, one of these working class men thought of this as something that was at all unusual, remarkable. But I mean, I, I do think you're, you're obviously seeing more people that are identifying with that sort of thing. You're not seeing more people that are actually having unprotected anal sex with men at a young age. Mm -hmm. In fact, you're seeing rates of sex among youth decline. All across the board, across yeah. the board, yeah. So you're, I mean, what you're seeing is really this sort of weird identity claiming. Like it's mm -hmm. not like the kids that are doing this are actually in passionate bisexual love affairs at 14. Many of them have probably never been kissed. But it's, it's you're choosing this identity. And I do think that a big part of that is no one wants to be a well-adjusted upper middle-class white girl from Frankfurt. 
you know, to right. some extent. So it's it you're you're saying, well, instead I am a you know demisexual girl boss. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the the social contagion element is also pretty well supported. I mean, we've gotten to a point where gender studies is probably one of the top thirty mm-hmm. collegiate majors where you have multiple people who are advising about gender swapping and so on on TikTok and YouTube. I mean, it's it's really remarkable, actually. I Googled yeah. Wilfred Riley gender once just to see what videos came up. Was I talking with Colin Wright or something? And there, there were a couple of videos of me. And then there was this rabbit hole down into all these influencers talking about binding your breasts and, you know, packing underwear and all this other stuff. And it's, it's really fascinating. There's a whole world of it. There's like tomboy enterprises sells all this stuff to kids. So like hip young girls will buy, you know, like a patch for their skateboard and then also underwear with a fake penis in them. So I, I have no doubt that as this spreads, as more people discuss it, you're seeing those kind of one-to-one contagion effects. There's a good paper about this by Littman, actually, uh, 2018, who found that the biggest predictor of your kid, basically, again, a, a normally adjusted middle-class kid who was not insistent, um, persistent, consistent, but had just suddenly decided that they were of the opposite sex or gender, the biggest predictor of that was having a close friend or lover that had decided this recently. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in some urban big city schools in New York or San Francisco or even Chicago or Louisville, I mean, you you would have a network of people that had taken on this identity and then started talking to their friends about, well, if you feel this way, you may have the same issue or the same characteristics. And I mean, to me, a lot of this bluntly ties into the fact that gender ideology is complete nonsense. Yeah. I mean, so like that, that is a big part of the baseline here. Like many of the people that develop modern gender ideology, Kinsey, Money, arguably Mm. later career Butler were nuts. Yeah. And the basic idea is really as simple as it sounds. It is biological sex is real. And I think like the Colin Wrights and so on are winning the argument over there. I don't think many, many people think it's not. But there's this other thing that is of at least equal value, and that is essentially how masculine or feminine you identify as being on the Butler scale. Right. So if you are, that's what gender is. Gender is how masculine or feminine you identify as being in stereotypical or normative terms on Judith Butler's scale or one of these you can find from the online influencers, so on down the line. And it's really a fascinating, weird idea I mean, this would be my impression coming from outside the field of gender studies and noticing they do almost no quant work and just thinking yeah. about this in the same way I would think about a Christian theologian's claims. Um, I don't see why that argument would be logical. I mean, like what you're saying is that if you're a full-on biological female with lubricating vagina, is probably the cleanest way to put that, so like breasts <laughs> right. and curly red locks and so on down the line and you have a strong sexual preference for males and you have a circle of female friendly intimates you can be a man if you like rugby that's literally what the argument breaks down to i mean kids are asked questions about how they feel about the traditional dress of their their sex or their gender and you know so on down the line and that's what that's what on the gender bread man for example would make you a member of of the other one so, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I basically just think this is nonsense, but because the categories are so flexible, virtually anyone can say some of these things, like being non-binary, the huge majority of people that are non-binary are female. Yeah. And being non-binary just means kind of like, I'm a boss bitch, excuse the language, but like, I'm a woman 
And I don't believe that I fit into all of the feminine categories. I might like to be dominant sexually. I might like to wear short hair. This is like half the people I dated in earlier life. Right. <laughs> what are my thoughts on those two preferences? These are just like urban women. Like the first yeah. one was like rules girl in 1980s. But I mean, like, if, if you have those characteristics, you can claim that identity and come out as envy putting you up on the oppression pyramid right. Uh, right again i have no doubt this is increasing i have no doubt some of it's due to social contagion the real question with this is just how seriously people are going to frankly pretend to take it and for how long and I, right. I think as you get into real examples like with the leah thomas thing like okay it's a matter of identification so can i as a fully biologically male swimmer compete in the women's national championship and there are people saying yes of course you can we're not bigots I think the ordinary person looking at that is going to say, these people are insane. They're, they're yeah. nuts. So that, that, again, like the extreme racial stuff, is going to be a lodestone around the neck of the left parties, the Democrats and the Greens, unless something's done about it. Well, and I, and I think that that hits the nail right on the head to bring this around full circle. And I know you got to go. You're sitting outside. And I really appreciate you being here. But I, I, think, I think it, as soon as it becomes uh completely obvious that un it's unavoidable that this is an albatross around the neck of those politically and 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 you know uh it, that they can't make money off of it anymore that they can't win office on it anymore that you're gonna see it continue until the, that becomes obvious and i hope that that's sooner rather than later because my concern is I think that we're going to see a, a, a backlash here, especially, I mean, you're running into 2022, you run into 2024, you, everything is so short term now, but you have a whole generation that it's being soiled with this, for lack of a better term, yeah. that it's literally harming them mentally, psychologically, physically, that that's, you're going to see the ramifications of that, not in the next five years, you're going to see it 15 or 20 years from now when they start to take over, you know, and, and whether that is, I think that could manifest in two different ways. It could manifest in another resurgence of, of what we're seeing only to the nth degree, or it could manifest in kind of a counter reaction that could overdo it. You know, whether you want to talk about a, a post-liberal movement where you're seeking the strong man or you're, you know, tr whether you want to pejorativize it or demonize it as Trumpism on steroids, you know, I see that, that kind of a, a backlash may be forming too. And I that that's what scares me about this because it is embedded so deep in lower education. I'm talking pre-K, kindergarten, that that and coming at this from a music standpoint, just as an example, try to sing the ABCs without singing them. Try to say them without singing them. That type of stuff is embedded in your mind and informs you yep. beyond you know, your formative years and it will stick with you. And so my concern with this is how it's going to manifest politically, because I think that, that, you know, just like Lincoln said, you know, the philosophy of the schoolhouse in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. And I think that's what you hit on a lot of without directly saying it a lot of times is, hey, let's look at the data here and actually contend with the problem, Right. And not with what we perceive the problem to be. And there's there's actual science that shows that. And so I'm gonna give you the last word. What can we do to prevent my my what I just kind of articulated as my two nightmare scenarios where we go really woke <laughs> and, and to the point that it destroys society, or we go reactionary to woke that to the point that it destroys freedom, I think it could, you know, in, in our in our future. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the most basic thing ordinary citizens can do is tell the truth. And I think that what's unique about a lot of these ideas is that absolutely nobody believes them. Yeah. Um, this is something I've found over and over again, doing pretty serious survey work for clients, even screwing around on social media in pretty low tech, but 20, 30,000 respondent polls. I mean, I've asked things in both of those settings that were along the lines of, do you feel your upper middle class black buddies are oppressed? Do you feel that males can effortlessly become women by, by saying they are essentially? Do you feel that a number of these other things are true? Do you feel that for example, overrepresentation of blacks and men in jail has nothing to do with crime rate. And very consistently in response to these things that you're all sort of supposed to believe, only one or 2% of people have actually said they do believe this. I mean, the, the trans thing maybe got up to 5%. People, and people were, were very willing to say like, I'll be socially polite, but no, you asked me anonymously, you had the survey monkey link through the, um, through the social media page. No, I, I don't believe that. And I can't imagine many people do. So I think that the situation right now is not actually that this new movement has nearly conquered the country or something like that. I think it's that people who know they have very unpopular radical ideas have intentionally tried to take over specific fields like secondary mm -hmm. education, higher education, the NGO sector, the media. So it often seems like everyone is parroting these same sort of pieces of a mouse 3% is what I think of it as rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that even most scholars in those fields don't believe that. I mean, I actually, for my next book, uh, did some research on the American Psychological Association. And right now the, the idea is that they're wildly woke, sort of they're endorsing total affirmation, um, quote unquote therapy for gender confused kids and so on. The reality is a lot more complex. I mean, like a policy like that would come up, come from a group of maybe eight to 12 activists who chose to sit on sort of the non-methodological DSM-5 definitions withdrawing panel at the conference. You and I have both been to elite academic events. Yeah. And it, it's from that group that this content that could be massively influential has spread outward. There yeah. wasn't actually any mass decision among the psychologists and psychiatrists of the USA. In fact, I mean, the APA still says some things that I view as mildly racist. Uh, 50% of the gap in IQ scores between blacks and whites is probably genetic. It's still their official position. So, I mean, the organization itself, when it comes to core premises of psychology, is center or center right very, very often. We had one incident where a group of people that really cared about this niche sector went in and basically changed the words in the latest version of their manual. Yeah. And that's it. There, there's no massive national shift in understanding of what a vagina is in the United States of America. So my advice for ordinary people is to, to recognize that this is usually the case. The experts being referred to are six or seven people on one end of the political spectrum. It's just as easy to find experts on the other side in most cases. I mean, if I yeah. wanted to cite anything from watchful waiting when it comes to quote unquote transgender kids to a sane attitude toward COVID, I mean, the first two people I could name would be the Surgeon General of the great state of Florida and then the King of Sweden. So, yeah. I mean, anyone, <laughs> anyone can do this. Yeah. You know, so just realize, realize that what you are thinking in common sense terms, supported by 49% of the experts and every intelligent person you know, 
is shared by most of the people in society. So just speak up, get involved with groups that that fight back against this sort of thing. And there's a giant anti-woke movement growing. I mean, yes. I've mentioned I've provided advice for FAIR, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. 1776 Unites is a bit more on the right side of the aisle. That's the Black business and social science communities response to the nonsensical 1619 project. The Revolutionary mm -hmm. War was fought to decrease freedom was the argument there. Um, you know, just and so on. I mean, you go all the way. There's Moms for Liberty. I mean, there, there's there yes. all of these groups from this side of the spectrum, well, from this the middle of the spectrum over to the hard right side of the spectrum that oppose this stuff. I would encourage people to get involved, tell the truth. And if you if you go online and look at any number of just ordinary people with, say, a master's degree and a good sense of wit, Eva Karolova, the lesbian writer from Canada, comes to mind. When they make just obvious points against these ideologies, like, can I be a lesbian if women don't exist? There is no response. Right. The response is things like people saying, I guess you'll just have to learn to like girl dick. Yeah, and the average person right. is going to look at that and say, wait, what? You're telling a yeah. party The feminine penis is what I've heard, yeah. It's like, what? But like, just, just so speak up, get involved with the organizations, center left, center right wing. I mean, do that, get involved in local politics, but also just don't lose sight of your common sense and your sense of humor. Remember that if, if someone is saying things like the quote that Gad Sad uses in his latest mm -hmm. book, uh, some women just have nine inch penises, almost everyone is going to view that as, as nonsensical as you do. Yeah. So be as polite as you need to be in a business meeting, but also continue to recognize reality and speak about these topics. Be right. anonymous if you need to be, but preferably do not be. Well, and I think I think just to hit, you know, an old old business term, radical candor is is important when it comes to just basic truth, you know, and 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 I I love I love what I see you do on Twitter. I see James Lindsay do on Twitter and and lots of the God side. And, you know, sometimes you just have to make fun of it a little bit and just okay. say, look, hey, here's the ridiculous part of this, guys. And and uh, that's the positive thing I've seen over the last two or three years is you went from fear. I think there was a lot of fear. Um, and you saw that, especially amongst the white community or the male community or, you know, anybody that was, you know, sitting atop the intersectional mountain, you know, Olympus or whatever. And, 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 and over the course of time, things have gotten so ridiculous that people are not afraid anymore. And I, that, and I, I, I echo what you say there is we've got to stop being afraid because the truth is important. And, and I, I believe that our children's lives, their futures are in the balance here. And so if we if we deny the truth now, it's going to be very hard for them to find it later. And uh, it's guys like you who've come out early and, and done the, the hard work that dug into the data and, you know, present it in a way on Twitter or on YouTube to get to, to educate uh, all of us, you know, uh, to down the line uh, to to help us become courageous and get involved and create these organizations that, that I really appreciate and, and why I was really excited when you reached out to me to maybe come on the show. And so uh, th I just want to thank you again. Let, let everybody know how we can find you on Twitter, YouTube, wherever, wherever you're at. I'm, I'm very easy to find. If you just search <laughs> my name, which is Wilfred Riley, it's W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y. You'll find my website, Twitter, Facebook, videos. So just uh, check me out. I'll engage with you. 
Yeah, he he does, and that that's that's the thing I also want to say before I let you go is that guys guys like Wilfred, guys like James, even Chris Rufo, you know, they they they've been down in in the trenches here, and they they will if you reach out, they'll reach back, you know, and 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 engage, and the that is something I don't think you don't see a lot in in upper academia or even just you know celebrity culture, you know, um, that I really appreciate. So, well, thank you again for being here. Uh, thanks for sitting out and getting sweaty in the sun for us. And I, I can almost smell that barbecue behind you, man. So <laughs> thanks right, for being see you, here. Brother. Yep.